0: Connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. Good morning, or good afternoon, or whatever time of day it is, wherever you are, where you're hearing this podcast. Um, it's called the Lucado Podcast, and today my guest is Madeleine Landry, and I welcome her. She is a friend I met at Pi Day in Scott. <laughs> so that's welcome. right. It's been a while back. Good Friday, Pie Day. Exactly. And uh, that's kind of a, a special place to meet anybody. Mm-hmm. So I have invited you here today today. Um, Do you know what we're going to do? I don't. This is going to be a wonderful surprise. What is Le Cadeau? What is it about? Okay, so Le Cadeau is the name of uh, a CD I did way back in 1995. But it means in French, the gift. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's basically talking about the gift of healing. Okay. But since healing never happens in a vacuum, the gift of healing has to come from your culture or your family or your church, or your uh, something from your life. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying. So, so it's the gift of life, the gift of community. It's a whole lot of gifts rolled into one. So, um, I think part of the gift of Pi Day was the gift of hospitality.
1: Yes, and your Uncle Paul yeah. exemplified that so beautifully oh,
0: by inviting everyone into his home. Which is an old bank, right? It is. And he has since he has since died. Right. And his great nephew now bought the bank as Paul had bought the bank, which doesn't mean anybody's rich in Scott. <laughs> you buy the bank. <laughs> it just sounds that way. <laughs> and you live in it. Yeah. And and Uncle Paul, as we all call him, is uh, my first cousin. But he was an uncle to everybody. Oh, he was everybody's uncle. He was so avuncular. He That's was a good so, word for him. He so was. And um and uh, we would make pies on Holy Thursday and share them on Good Friday, which is marks the beginning of the Triduum and the end of Lent, and people would not eat meat. And um, so pie was a day to have a meal without cooking or preparing it on Good Friday before going to work. And you mom. just said something important to have a meal, because I remember asking him, what about the
1: fasting? And he said, so long as it's one meal... <laughs> it's okay, and the pies you eat
0: all day long, <laughs> so it was a meal <laughs> it's so true, it's so true so um, and I think paul Paul, and I came to know each other um in our later years, and uh he was a gift to you, oh, he was a huge gift to me, as I was to him, it was amazing, mm-hmm. and um and he we brought people to each other. So I met some of his friends, and he met some of my friends. And so um, I invited you here. I don't even know why. <laughs> do you know I, when I, I asked
1: you? I don't. We um, <laughs> No, you messaged me on Facebook and said, I do a podcast on healing. Would you like to come in December? And I said, yeah, my semester of teaching will be over, so give me a date. And here we are. And I'm sure whatever happens
0: is going to be a gift. Exactly, because healing is it, its not just something that happens when you go to the doctor and or someone prays over you. Everything we do is either going to help or, or not help. So, um, so tell me something about healing so we can start this interview. Okay. <laughs> um, actually,
1: I teach interpersonal communication, and I'm thinking maybe that, maybe something I posted about that might have made you think. Um, this will be an interesting conversation, and I'm sure it will be. Communication connects people. And I think the gift of healing can only happen when people are connected to their beliefs, like you just said, their culture, uh, some touchstone in their life that's making them search. And without community, communication, uh, that just, I I guess it it may happen, but until we recognize it and speak it into being, it's not real to us.
0: Okay, and then talk to me about The fact that words are only symbolic. Well, you know,
1: a lot of times, and I teach this online, I teach it on campus, and I teach it in my business, listen here, to um, businesses that want better communication skills for their employees. And I generally start by asking the group, do words have meaning? And 99.99% of the time people say, well, of course they do. And then I explain to them, no, words are just symbols. They're just symbols, and our symbols are different because we have one alphabet. It's not you know, the same, like you might have the Cyrillic alphabet or another type of alphabet. Uh-huh. What they mean to us, according to communication researchers, and the, the researchers have come up with a theory they call the schema theory. And if you think of a schematic when you're putting, say, a wiring diagram together or you're putting, let's say, IKEA furniture together, and you yeah, have to have exactly. that diagram to show you what to do, we all have a schema in our own brain. And that schema tells us what that word means. And the example I use oftentimes is if I say the word father, if you had a wonderfully benevolent father in your life, you have a warm feeling that comes over you. The emotions that are stirred in your brain are positive emotions. If you had an abusive father or a neglectful father, a father who wasn't there, an absent father,
0: you get a different,
1: yeah, the connotation is always different than the denotation of a word. So words in themselves only carry the meanings that we give to them. And I think healing is one of those words, because as you started, you said healing doesn't just take place. When someone's praying over you or someone's in a hospital and being healed of a disease, healing has to start inside of each human being. They have to accept, first of all, they have to accept that there's something that needs to be healed. And we all have that. We're all walking wounded in one way or another. And then we have to accept that someone or something, something that comes into our life that connects us to other people in our community can heal us.
0: Right. So I, I just want—I just think that that's really important because it's—it's it's all about words, and then words mean different things to different people. So then it's not about words at all; it's about experience. But we're not contradicting ourselves. No, no. I, you know, words have a
1: literal, like I said, a denotation, exactly. a definition when you look them up. But if you know, if you're the person who had the neglectful absentee father, for instance, and you're in a a church. And you hear someone praying to God, our Father, who will give us good things. That's a big jump to make if your father was not a good person who could give you good things. This
0: is so this is so big. I have a friend whose name is Francis Vanderwald. And I recommend his book to everybody that has any kind of uh, need to understand God. He used to be a Jesuit, and now he's not. And the title of his book is Freedom from Fear. Mm-hmm. And I believe his, his, how, I believe what he said in his book, because our concept of God doesn't come from who taught us about God or the church, or our concept of God comes from our experience of our parents, which is what you just said, Mm -hmm. you know? And so. What if, happened to you in the formative years? What, exactly. what influenced you? What it doesn't matter. You the the faith that that you learned about God through, if you even had faith, if if you had a church, or if you were um, just like in, into spirit, or 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 maybe uh, the native people who have uh, native church that that is understanding God through nature. No matter the concept of God we were given, it's our experience of our parents that give us our, our honest concept of God. So that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people need to be healed because they didn't get
1: the idealistic parent, father or mother, or both. Well, and you so you go me through life, again, as a walking wounded, saying... I didn't get that. Now, I was blessed that I had wonderfully loving parents, wonderfully loving parents. They were were not wealthy people. My mother finished eighth grade. My father got out of 10th grade, went immediately into the Civilian Conservation Corps and then into World War II. So in that sense, they weren't book educated but they were very educated in you know in common sense and a, a number of people can tell you that but i say that to say i had this great experience but i know that there are other people out there who did not right. and who either overcame it and re- you know realized early on this doesn't have to define me or define my life from this point forward or they
0: didn't get healed exactly it's like you know you you forgive your parents for having brought their own human experience into your life because how can we live without bringing our own human experience? Exactly. Exactly. Like, I think my children are going to have to forgive me. No, <laughs> oh, let's not even go on that. That's a long podcast, Becca. <laughs> no, 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 but it's just to say, so I don't have to be so um, unforgiving for the faults I had as a human being. Right. Because as I, as I work on getting my own act together, so to speak, I would never do things the way I did them. But, you know, hey... You did what you did then because you knew what you knew then. At the time, it was so the best Mm -hmm. I could do. Exactly. How did you move from New Orleans to where you live on a farm (laughs) near
1: Lake Charles? It's funny. um, We live actually between Fenton and Kinder, and I've had people that are native to that area look at me and ask that question. One lady in particular said, people leave here and go to New Orleans. They don't go the opposite direction but I've been moving west since I was 18. It seems like I got out of high school. I married my first husband at 18. We moved to Laplace and then to Gonzales, and then we divorced, and then I moved to Baton Rouge, and then I moved to Lafayette, and I met my present husband, and we bought the farm, not in the sense we bought the farm, exactly. but we bought a farm. And, um, it was in 06 and then we moved out there in the very end of 2009. So I remember the first time walking out there to look at the property, and... There were cows on the on the property that belonged to someone else. And I said, are these cow patties going to be here all the time? <laughs> he, he said, well, they don't really have flush toilets for cows. What did you expect? <laughs> so it has become a part of my life now, you know, for what, eight years now, going on nine years that we've lived out there, that I had to – I wanted to move out there. Don't get me wrong. I wanted to. It seemed like a great adventure at the time. But I had to get used to a number of things because it is not the city And actually, I grew up in Algiers, which is not the city of New Orleans. So in a lot of ways, it replicates my growing up because we lived in an area that was surrounded by woods until development started. Exactly. And so I hung around the canal banks, you know, chased down my little brother who was collecting frogs and snakes and lizards. So it's almost like returning back to that in a lot of ways, but also learning to really appreciate the beauty of southwest Louisiana, because it is different. It's not mountains. It's not the lake. It's 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 just it's got
0: its own type of beauty, so that's how I ended up out there. Wow. so when you um, moved or you had your childhood in 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 the country at that time the city was the country. We had more country everywhere when mm-hmm. we were little than we have now. yeah, I was actually in the French quarter. This day last
1: week, visiting with friends I went to high school with 44 years ago. And the high school doesn't exist anymore. It was St. Joseph High School off of Tulane Avenue. But we were laughing because in the French Quarter, at the, the gate, I guess, across the street from the St. Louis Cathedral, Mayor Victor Sciro in the 60s awarded the first one dozen permits to artists to sit in the Jackson Square area and paint. Wow. And my mother's father was one of those artists. Wow. So as children... We would actually ride our bikes in Algiers, get to the ferry landing, cross the ferry on Canal Street, get out, take our bikes and go visit my grandfather and come home and my mother would say, "Where have y'all been?" and we'd say, "Oh, just riding bikes." She <laughs> never knew we were cross- and and that memory is so special to me. What did you call your grandpa? Papite. He I was love French, it. Papite.
0: We had Papite and Mamite. I love it. So, did you know or understand anything about healing, either in Algiers or in New Orleans at the time, aside no. from going to doctors?
1: You know, we went to a regular family doctor. Um, I mentioned Mayor Skiro. His, the doctor that we had, the family doctor that delivered me, was actually, I think, a, a cousin. He was a Dr. Skiro. Right. But grew up devoutly Catholic. and you know, my parents both you know, made sure we went to Catholic school, even though they had to struggle to pay for that tuition. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really appreciate the healing side of that culture until I moved away. And I I don't think it really even dawned on me until I got to Lafayette and met people in the Cajun culture. Right. I married a man who's very definitely proud of his Cajun culture. We went to Nova Scotia a year after we were married, and I did not even know until then that my mother's grandmother, my maternal great grandmother, was a Piku and was part of the family that one of the families that were participating in the Le Grand Right. I didn't know that till I got home. My mother was deceased by then and I contacted a cousin of hers who's still alive in St. Mary Parish and I said, Years ago I remember you doing some kind of genealogical research on the Piku family. Send me what you have. And it it brought me to tears when I opened up her letter because we were married, Pikus were married to Landry's, to Boudreaux's, to Tibidos. They were all part of that culture. And it was the sudden sense of almost like the spirit consuming you and saying, This is your culture too. You just didn't know it until it was time for you to know it.
0: So, did you figure out how you related to your husband who is now a Landry? <laughs> Some kind of way, I'm sure we are. And I'm then, sure I just my said, daughter married
1: a peek so like, <laughs> that's kind of scary, but, it's okay. but uh, and my dad's had the family were you know, were German, they were German people from around the city, uh, Ottoman Park area in New Orleans, so that was a, a different culture. But that was the culture I was more comfortable with, and again, did not know until a friend of both of ours I know you know well, Dr. Barry Ancelet, uh-huh. I broke my hip in '06, right before I was finished with graduate school at UL. And he, he gave me a book while I was still recuperating called The Germans of Louisiana. Yeah. And it wasn't until I read that book that I realized how strong the German culture was in southwest Louisiana. Because yeah. it had always been just something in New Orleans for us.
0: Right. But it's, yeah. yeah we so it's just we are a
1: mixed breed. We definitely are a gumbo. Totally, totally, I mean, that's, totally. it's probably an overused metaphor, but it's just because it fits. It works. It It, works. It it does. It works. And even the communication path, you know, I look back and you talk about healing. Uh, One of my students asked me, what got you interested in interpersonal communication, which really is just communication between two people, maybe three, but not small group and not, you know, more one-on-one. Exactly. And it's interesting because I was separated from my first husband in 2000 and my daughter was in a horrific wreck the day i got the key to my first apartment my you know my first independent wow. apartment i get to the hospital found out that her best friend had been killed rachel survived but just barely And, of course, she couldn't live with her dad because she was so, you know, broken ribs, broken pelvis, just so broken Broken. that she needed someone who could take care of. And it just so happened the apartment I got was three exits on the Interstate 10 from the hospital where she was, where she'd have to go back for subsequent surgeries, et cetera. So I had already signed up to take an interpersonal communication course just as an elective. I was heading for my poli sci uh, bachelor's degree, and I I contacted the school and said, I can't take it. I'm going to have to drop the course because this happened. And the teacher said, you know what, we can do this because, of course, this is pre-internet day. She said, we can do this as a correspondence course, which is a term I'm sure that no one uses anymore. Exactly. And it was a book that talked about interpersonal communication. She said, I want you to look at one special relationship in your life as you do this, and you can take up to nine months to finish it. And I used my daughter because our relationship was very wow. um, hot and cold. I mean, she, poor thing had been through the the worst trauma anybody can experience. She was angry with me because her father and I were separated. So it was a, a year or a nine months of really testing the communication in a mother-daughter relationship. But fast forward to I graduate with my bachelor's in 04 from UL, late learner, but I finally finished. And I went back to grad school, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to take – Communication again. The same book that I used when I went to LSU, which was in its sixth edition then, was in its tenth edition when I went to grad school. And so that I ended up in that major. And now that same book, Interplay by Dr. Adler, is in its thirteenth edition, and that is the book that I teach from. And I still have all the lessons that I mailed as a correspondence course that maybe one day will turn into a book. But the way life works when you look at it as these are not isolated incidents. Exactly. They they have to be tied together and you have to look for what's the commonality here? What connects? And how did my daughter and I heal our relationship through learning what emotions mean, learning what language means, learning about nonverbal communication, about perception and communication? All those things
0: mattered. How old was your daughter at the time? 19. Yeah, so she was really already an adult. Mm -hmm. And that's when you start letting your children be them. Yes. But then how do you let go when that has been your role? And then her being, yeah, it just gives you something to work with. Wow. Wow. Well, I would come
1: home some days and she'd be curled in a fetal position, reliving that moment when the accident occurred. Then I'd come back from the store and she'd be angry. You know, so it was um, hot, cold, everything in between. And I knew my purpose as a mother is to be here for her. Exactly. In any way I can. But the whole family, of course, has to heal from someone going through that. Exactly. And everybody heals in
0: a different way. Exactly. Good you know, point. and yeah. so that course was a tool of healing for you. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why you would say that communication is healing. It is. Yeah. Because because it is um, we think about perception and communication,
1: how we perceive ourselves, how others perceive us, how we perceive others, and all those things like the, there's a, a another communication theory. It's called the Jahari window, and it's a window with four quadrants, and one quadrant is what I know about me, one is what others know about me, one is what I know about others, and the last one is what we don't know about ourselves exactly and that that quadrant is the most exciting to me because every day that we live we learn more about what we would do in a particular circumstance how we would communicate with a certain person right and it keeps
0: adding to our experience like like um I'm bringing up the conversation death and dying mhm because we need to normalize that conversation absolutely because and we can't we can't say that we can't teach about death and dying in medical terms because it's not a medical experience. It's an end of life experience. And we can't really teach it in all the colleges as a uh from the point of view of of a ministerial thing because every church is different. So if right. you're Everybody Jewish and I'm a- Catholic, if I teach it this way then right. so then how do we get it's how do we first of all normalize conversation but In that thing in that quadrant where we don't know about us, well, I kind of like to think I'd be okay, but I don't know that either. No, we don't. (laughs) We don't. It fits in that window. We just
1: lost a very good friend of ours who was part of this um, communication group that my husband and I participate in at McNeese, and he found out he had esophageal and stomach cancer, and they told him maybe you have 30 days, and, of course, he didn't. It didn't end up. But what he asked for of the group was, can we meet in one of the couples that belongs to the group? He said, can we meet in Don and LaDonna's garden? and just celebrate my life because I know it's coming. You know, the end is coming Yeah, soon. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the, this other friend of ours that was there, she said, we need to get back to this where we accept that people, we're, we're all going to get out of here the same way. No one knows what happens after. No one comes back and tells us.
0: Exactly. But we
1: have put this fear of saying goodbye, and it's it's a human thing. Like you it's said, human. we, we want to believe that we're going to be okay. But some of us, our life ends instantly, and some of us know about it beforehand.
0: Exactly, but it's not necessarily medical. So we've taken healing and done the same thing with it. We can't. So how can we normalize the conversation about healing? Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with StoryCorps? Yes, I love StoryCorps you, on you, NPR. Okay, so. Um, I did that with my son, you know, and so he and I were there, and you know, we need to be comfortable, and, and there was a tech in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And um, my son is a musician, and all of my children are big people, if you know what I'm talking about. They have big things to say and big ideas, and uh, I didn't realize how brave I was to ask my child <laughs> to ask me stuff, right? And so... He began by talking about my father's death when I was 12. My father died from suicide. And then he got into the healing thing. And then we're really good with left-handed compliments. Are you familiar with left-handed compliments? Oh, yes, indeed. (laughs) Well, you know, like mom. (laughs) Or ass-backwards compliments, as we call them. Like, mom, you know, you're not exactly the best housekeeper. But when somebody's dying, you know what to do or say or what. And I'm like. There's you know, a kernel
1: of compliment. There's there. <laughs> a big
0: compliment in there. But then in that moment because he had brought us to the com- the concept of healing the technician said, "Can I ask a question?" Well, like I'm going to say no. I mean, really. <laughs> you could just delete everything we just did if I say no. <laughs> but technically he's not supposed to be there or right. in our conversation, but he was like he was so with us, right? And so he looks at me and he goes, Well, if if people are going to die, I I thought you were healer. Why do the people die? Or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So healing doesn't mean we're going to cure. No. Or avoid death in any way. Hello. Nothing is going to avoid death. So whenever someone comes to me and they talk about healing or maybe beginning to do it, because it's something we can all do, I really recommend that they go become a hospice volunteer. It's so interesting you're saying that, because here I am in Lafayette
1: with you. At the AOC Studios, and in 04 through 06, when we still lived here in Lafayette, I actually had a show, a 30-minute talk show on Acadiana Open Channel. You're right. And, you know, so I was familiar with the studios.
0: So you went my to the old show. Studio, yes,
1: and my first <laughs> show I was going to do, and I know he's no longer here, but it was with Mike Blanchard of Acadiana Hospice. <gasps> Yeah. And he moved on to a hospice, I think, somewhere up in... No, but
0: he moved back.
1: Oh, he did move back. Okay. Yeah. I don't okay. Know. Well, when I go to talk to him to prepare for the, the, you know, the, the TV show, the first thing he mentioned was how people would come to him and say, how can you do what you do? It's got to be so morbid and sad. And, and you know, Mike, Mike didn't have a morbid spirit at all. And he said, what I always tell people is when 9-11 happened, I was scheduled to go to a conference that same week. And then 9-11 occurred. So when I went to the conference, what I was going to say, I threw out, and this is what I told people. Imagine those people who went to work that morning of 9-11 thinking, I'm coming home tonight. They may have left in anger. They may have left impatiently. They may have left, you know, in, in all kinds of negative or positive ways. But they never had the opportunity to say, I'm sorry, or let's heal our relationship before I go. He said, that, That's sad. People who know that they're dying in hospice have an opportunity to speak to family and friends and people who they've cut off, who have come back into their life to say goodbye. Think of the marvelous healing opportunity and the ripple effects when that person says goodbye, what happens to the people that spoke with them. And, you know, it's just so funny when you brought that up. I'm thinking that was my very first show
0: on a KDN open channel to talk about that. Right. And I don't know how much progress we have made in our own societies and communities about normalizing that conversation. I think we're coming back to that because
1: honestly, when you think about how we've made it so clinical and sterile, we've removed dying in the home and waking our people in a home to putting them in a a place apart and making a business out of it. Exactly. Not to say that we don't need funeral directors. This is not a knock on that industry. But we've removed ourselves from the process of dying because we've gotten the technology in hospitals to keep ourselves alive a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And the argument is always there. Is it quality of life that we're going for or just more years? Exactly. And and that's a, a debate, I think, that's happening in our country now. I don't know that you mentioned StoryCorps. Are you familiar with the Sun magazine? Yes. Okay. They had... An, Probably about a year ago, an essay, and the woman who was writing it was saying that that it, she had the opportunity, and I forget which parent it was, but one parent knew that he or she had terminal cancer or heart problems or whatever, and so they they took the you know whatever they needed to do the means to keep that person alive longer. When the next parent faced the same thing, he or she said, "Don't do that to me," because the other parent did not have quality of life, and so this woman's crusade now is. We have to talk about mm-hmm. the process that we're all going to go through. Exactly. We love to celebrate being born, but we don't want to talk about dying. Right? We, we, we get uncomfortable. And I go back to this, this two or three weeks ago when we were in the garden with this gentleman who, who passed on just last week. One of the ladies said, we're here to celebrate Ernie's life and to celebrate how much we care about him. And I thought what a marvelous opportunity that he took that attitude and invited us to come do that with him. That's awesome. You know and we all drive up and go, what do we say to Ernie? What do you say? And I remember my husband said, what do you say? And I said, whatever you want. Whatever he he wants to talk about. Exactly. You know th- this is his passage. And and I do a guided meditation every morning and the one I've been doing for the last couple of days, I think I even sent you the link. The lady that does it says something that's so profound to me, because she said, you know, when you're you're witnessing your breath, when you're trying to get into a meditative mood, you cannot breathe a breath that you breathed yesterday, and you can't breathe a breath for tomorrow. Exactly. You can only breathe in the present. And the force that gives us that breath, we can concentrate on our breath and breathe deeply and watch ourselves breathing out. But sooner or later, we go back to our regular breathing pattern, and we don't even have to think about it. There's a force that breathes for us. Right. And that is the force that we think stops when we, we leave this earth, but we don't know. We don't know. Maybe it goes on in another manifestation after this. And yeah. it doesn't matter whether we know or not. To me, there's, there's this wonderful singer, um, Iris DeMent, uh-huh. who sings a song called Let the Mystery Be. And that's what her song is about. It's like some people say this is going to happen. Some people say that's going to happen. Let the mystery be. Let it be a mystery because no one's going to come back and tell us anyway. So what difference does it make? Exactly.
0: You know, but, but we take what we have now, which is different than what we had as children, and we see the world in this way. Because our schemas have changed. Exactly. exactly And so we don't have to be afraid of how things are. It's just a different way. But it's a simple understanding that I believe we have tried to solve a mystery by giving it more detail. Like, you know... Like technology's gonna Technology Technology's fix it. gonna or it's if not. I know you know <laughs> the details. If we know more what's going on. Well, maybe we knew more before all this technology and that we we the pendulum swings to technology so we can get mm-hmm. all this, but it's still a mystery in the end.
1: And what have we traded off? Well you know, when I look at what we do today, like you talked about the fear of death. I find it so interesting that our fear of death has turned into shows that uh, are very popular, things like The Walking Dead, (laughs) (laughs) zombies. They all show death. We all love to be afraid of these beings that just won't lay down and die properly, for want of a better way to put it, or that come back to haunt us. Um, And it's it's so interesting. Right before I came here, I kind of got lost, and I stopped in at a little restaurant because I wasn't sure where the new studios were. And it was a place I used to have an office when we lived here in Lafayette, and the girl said, you had an office here? Did you have spirits? Did you get visited by ghosts? And I said, as a matter of fact, whenever (laughs) I was here late in the evening, there was the most benevolent sense of peace. And I said, maybe the spirits that are still here just liked me for some reason. I don't know, but there was never a sense of fear. But yet in our, our society, what's popular is turning these beings into something that even after they're dead can come back and hurt us. And even after we're dead, we can still be hurt because we just don't know. And exactly. we're grasping at uh, maybe a form of entertainment that makes us feel better, if if it makes sense. But,
0: you know, we, we just don't know, and I'm okay with the mystery. Exactly. But but at the same time, we're okay with the mystery. I think all of that is, an, and in a way, trying to solve the mystery.
1: Yeah, I guess that there's some truth in that. You know, that's like, the way I solve it. I guess is a good way to put it by saying it's okay.
0: It, it's a mystery, yeah. And how do we know? You
1: know, and loss is loss. There's no getting around it. When we lose someone we love, we are bereaved, and we should be. It is hard to say goodbye to someone that we've loved, and it's hard to imagine what what happens to that person once we've said goodbye to them. Where are they now? What what you know? What form do they exist in? And depending on what type of faith you have, what you know, what values or what religion you were raised with, or if you were raised with any religion, you may have different answers to that. But again, no one knows. No one knows. That's really And so I like to think that wherever my parents are and the people that have passed on before, that they have a sense of what's going on here. And what we have in this life is a finite mind, and what they possess now is an infinite mind. But I know we're all part of it. It's an energy that we're all part of. That's my belief.
0: Exactly, And you know, Um, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but in Catholicism, we we celebrate All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Well, maybe we had family members that will never be saints. I know I won't be. (laughs) but, But it doesn't mean that they can't help us from wherever that place is. You know, and even if it's just, if you take the view
1: that it's just the memory of the things that they meant to us and the things that they taught us, that that's helping you. That's a healing thing. Oh, totally. You know, I think of my my dad loved the nuns. And, of course, I went to what he called sister school because it was nuns that ran the school. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you did, no matter what defense you had for what you did, for whatever infraction you had, my daddy was going to take the nun's side because exactly. they were the nuns.
0: Well, in those days, they took teacher's side. Exactly. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> but, okay, go ahead. I'm
1: with you. But I remember him telling me one time because I questioned. We had a girl that was a couple of years older than me that went into one of the cloistered orders. And I thought... What good is that? You know, you you separate yourself from the world and you're just praying all day. And I remember my dad said, you know, Madeline, we don't always have time to pray. We're rushing around doing our thing. And he said, isn't it wonderful to think that there are people that are on their knees praying for us and about the world and about everything 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's what the nuns in these cloistered orders do or monks in a monastery, that's what they do. And I thought, you know, that is a nice way to think about it, that nonstop there are people out there who are asking for healing, whether we're aware of it or not.
0: Exactly. For is our nice highest one. good, that's like way cool. Mm-hmm. So is there anything – now we seem to have gotten to death and dying, which is okay with me. You took us there. That's why it's okay with you. <laughs> it's, I guess, but, you know, uh, it was just a suggestion I had to be able to – talk about healing that it's not going to solve everybody's problems because oftentimes people will know the doctors can't do anything and then they go in search elsewhere Mm -hmm. for what the doctors couldn't do like some kind of magical thing like can i throw away my crutches after i see you and like well (laughs) not necessarily I, i just wanted to make it be not so the answer to everything it's a it's an addition to everything we do. You do healing and you go see the doctor, mm-hmm. or, or um, it's, it. and you know what we're doing right now, communication. We we
1: started the show off with that, talking about anything, is therapeutic, way it has its healing way. power, because if we're not allowed to express ourselves, verbally even nonverbally, we we hold things in. You know, to use the the therapy terms, we internalize things or we project things onto the future. We all do these things. And to have even one person in your life that you can pick up the phone or write a letter to or, you know, in social media, email or send a message to, one person who says, I get that. Or one person who says, you know what, Becca, you're all wet on that. Let me Let me tell you how I feel about it. Even just one person in our life that's a sounding board, right. that's such a healing thing to have. And we, we tend to think about it this time of the year. It's the Christmas time of year, and we write Christmas cards, and we happy holidays to each other, and we think about how much it means to have family and friends. But all year long, without those people in our lives, that one person that we can turn to and say, could you just listen to me for a few minutes? I mean, our life would not be as healthy. And the word healthy, of course, has heal at the beginning of it. Exactly. And I think in that respect, we know words can hurt. You remember the, the little thing we said as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but mm-hmm. words can never yeah. hurt me. And we know words can hurt. They can be devastating. Lack of words can be devastating. The nonverbal, just I'm ignoring you, don't talk to me, that can be devastating and go back to our childhood as a child that doesn't know what these things mean or how to process it, that impacts our life for the rest of our life if we were ignored or we were belittled. Do you, you know? So communication is just so integral to being human. And we even talk about our animals, You know, talking to our dogs, talking to our cats, talking to our pet pigs if we have one. And plants. Plants, yeah. yeah the, the living things that we've surrounded ourselves with that mean something to us. Isn't it wonderful some days just to sit back with a cup of tea in your hand and talk to your plants and know that there's
0: some something organic that ties us together? Exactly. Do you remember how old you were when you made your first confession? Sure, I guess I was eight because I was in second grade. Okay, so this is about words and perspective, right? And so... <laughs> You're not going to ask me what I confessed. No, I'll tell you what I confessed. I don't. I, I I did not go to Catholic school, but but I was raised in in the church and communion, and confession, and catechism, the whole. So I'm um, about eight, and um, the priests and the nuns taught us catechism in Scott. The Eucharistic Missionaries of Saint Dominic would come to Scott, and and they're teaching us at seven or eight at this young age, impressionable, how we can break every commandment. Right? Hmm. <laughs> no, but they do that so that you can they ha- do. They do so that you can have a good examination of conscience. Right. So I knew how to break every of the ten every one of the ten commandments. So my first confession, I told Father Fournette, who was a priest in Scott but originally from um say Martinville, that uh, that I had committed adultery, and, and you're s- not alone. So many people have that story. <laughs> so then he says, "Well, how?" And I'm thinking to myself, "We well, like you taught us this. Why are you asking me how I did that?" You know, and it didn't matter which number I picked. I picked six. What can I say? <laughs> you know, did it six times. I I did. No, no, no. That was the six. That was the sixth, oh, command- was the sixth commandment. But, okay. but but it was but it was about. Yeah, it was just pick a number because yeah, I because to
1: confess something.
0: You know, it was disrespectful, whatever.
1: Right. I don't I, know how to covet, so I must have committed adultery. Well, that I didn't know be. how to
0: do adultery either is the whole point. But, but then he asked me how, and I'm like, well, you know, y'all taught us. Why are you asking me how? And then I remembered I told him impure thoughts.
1: And you didn't even know what that was at 7 or 8?
0: That was adultery for me at
1: 7 or 8. <laughs> I mean, I had a friend tell me that she thought adultery was trying to be an adult. So, and everybody is, at 7 or 8 wants to be older than what they are. So. This
0: is the power of words. Absolutely. Or or the misinformation mm-hmm. of what we don't understand at any age. And it, it doesn't really matter I'm 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 making an effort to bring humor into how can we explain when we're trying to teach adult things to children and you don't learn anything until you're ready to get it. Right. We don't know when a child's mind is open. So we do something. these rote things that we think are important, and we teach them what we think are important, whether it's a social skill or, a, or a, a religious foundation or something in school. and And the meaning that they have is not necessarily what the teacher is wanting them to learn. And so... But it sticks. See how you just told
1: that story. How many years ago? I mean, that has stayed in your mind. I think it's hysterical. You know, yeah, I wasn't that, that mad or upset. That.
0: Yes. No, because, because because, because it's funny, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, my funny
1: story from them is you remember the Baltimore Catechism had a picture of, oh, it was like containers of milk, glass bottles of milk, and your soul without sin was a bottle of white milk. And your soul with venial sin had chocolate chips in it. And then your soul on no mortal sin was chocolate milk, which of course I loved. So I thought, well, I want to be the mortal I want to sin be like, The sinner <laughs> that's,
0: one. That's please funny. make me that
1: one because I only like the chocolate milk. So.
0: That is funny. Well, I was looking on my phone. Um, there was a meme today and I, I couldn't find it, but I looked and it said something. We must live every day as though it is our last. And and that's why my house is so messy because I'm doing things that are so much more important than than organizing it. That's right. So, yeah. to support what you were saying a while ago, that was so sincere when you spoke with Mike about nine eleven. So, um, so can you
1: imagine when they carry Becca out feet first from her home? Her kids <laughs> saying, "We always told your mom wasn't much of a housekeeper. Don't remember her for that
0: reason." <laughs> exactly, my son told me that in the in the story core thing. So that was just funny. So, have you had any experiences with the healer in your own life? Is there anything you want to say about healing itself? No, um, you know, I, again. I guess healing is
1: something that, I do I, I don't want to put this, we have an awareness that we all need it for psychological reasons, for physiological reasons, for mental reasons, for emotional reasons, for all of the you know above, that we have an argument with somebody or a conflict with somebody, and we know we need to heal the relationship. Yeah. So I guess I look back at the trajectory of my life and realize, again, like you said at the beginning... We have a lot that we need to ask our children to forgive us for and our parents and, and friends, et cetera. But everybody does. It's a very human thing. Sure. But I look back at the trajectory of my life and see the things that I could have done so much better had I known then what I know now, but for some reason I wasn't supposed to know it yet. We can't. And it's because you have to have a need, I think, in your life to fill that void with something, with some form of healing for something that happened to you right whatever it was and every human being has it and again to go back to that force that makes us breathe i don't care who you are and you know again it sounds cliche you could be the janitor you could be the king you can't breathe without that force exactly everybody has to have that so i think healing is that that part of the force you can call it spirit you can call it you know uh, and i know catholics talk about grace coming mm-hmm. into our life we have to have that feeling inside of us That at the core of our being, we're okay or we're going to be okay.
0: Exactly. And I think when you spoke of having your daughter at home, it it was something that you could do. You were conveniently located, but you didn't know what to do. But you held a space. Right. And you didn't try to... Get her to uncoil when she was in fetal position or to calm down when she was angry at you, you just allowed her to be in a safe space well some days i I got upset well, I mean you're human <laughs> go back to that sainthood thing're we not, not we're not that, saints, but yeah, yeah, but for the most part it would make you stop and realize. and that's healing you yeah. know you were able to provide that with her you were not trying to be the doctor or the nurse no. or the healer or the angel angelic forces you know you were just right. mom. Being mom, working on healing a relationship because it's safe for us to be with the person who loves us. And so sometimes she could sew a side of herself to you in her emotions that she couldn't show to anybody else. Right. Because you weren't going to hate her back. That unconditional love. Exactly. And I think that's the essence of all healing.
1: I think so too. And I think, you know, when you talk about. Lives being a balance of the feminine and the masculine, and not in the the traditional sense, but the feminine being that nurturing part of us, that part that says, come here, let me hold you. I don't have any answers, but just holding you will have to do. Yeah. And then the masculine side of us is that logical, analytical side that says there must be a way to fix this. And I think if we don't have a marriage of both within our being, we struggle. And maybe that's what life is supposed to be, is to learn how to be the best of both. Because there are times when you need that physician's touch, when you need that surgery, when you have to have the gallbladder removed or whatever. But there are also times when you need that emotional healing that unconditionally, somewhere, someone accepts you
0: for who you are and for the things that you've done. Exactly. Like being and doing something. Sometimes we can do something. Sometimes we just have to be in it. Sometimes you just have to be. You can't. Yeah, you know, exactly. You can't do. You just have to be. Wow.
1: Well, I think that on that note. Oh, can I tell one more story? Oh, yeah, sure. This is this is a funny <laughs> story. You, you wanted to inject a little humor. My mother passed away in 1995. She had um just a, a lot of problems with her heart and at one point when you talk about being raised Catholic, this is just the the epitome of Catholicism to me. At one point, she was in Slidell. I think we were living in Gonzales at the time, and my sister lived in Slidell. And she called, and she said, look, Mom had a really bad night. You know, this this might be it. Her heart was in arrhythmia or whatever it's supposed to be in or not be in. You might want to check the kids out of school and come up to say hello, you know, and, and, and talk to Mom. I said, okay. So I checked my kids out of school. We drive from Gonzales to Slidell. And, of course, in the couple of hours that it took, I get there, I go up into the ICU unit, and my mother is sitting at her bed in her little nightgown and her little tray in front of her, and she's got five or six bottles of trial size shampoo and conditioner, and she's eating lunch. And I said, oh, Mom, I heard you had a really rough night, but you look like you're feeling well. And she said, she was very New Orleans, she said, oh, darling, I had a terrible, terrible night. It was awful. But she said this morning when the nurse came in, she said, You know what, Miss Brawana, let me just wheel you down the room and you can go play bingo with the other ladies. And look, I won all these trial size shampoos. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, here's the Grim Reaper knocking at your door, but you're so Catholic, you got to finish your bingo game first. Exactly. I'm not going anywhere. I'm waiting on I 65 or whatever. <laughs> So that, you know, I always laughed about that when mom finally did depart the world a couple of weeks after that, that that story just stuck with me. And I think I told it to so many people at her wake that that was the essence of who she was. Exactly. And that's what I want. You know, when when we communicate to people, we want to communicate who we are, what we think, what we believe. But we also have to listen because other people want to communicate that to us. And that healing happens when we listen. It does.
0: Wow. 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 And your mom was ready. She was. The Grim Reaper was nothing. Yeah. Nothing to be concerned about. She actually dreamed about my father about two or three days before she died.
1: They were working on a room together, and he wanted her to give him a hammer. And she put her hand through the studs like you were working on a, a room. Uh-huh. And he said, no, I want you to come on this side with me. And he grabbed her hand <gasps> with the hammer. And I always thought about that. I thought, you know, he was there to welcome you. He missed exactly. you. They'd been 17 years apart. That just always made me feel like, wow, whatever happens on the other side. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, we yeah. have some peace about it. Some healing. Exactly. Thank you, Becca, for well, inviting thank you. you today. Thank
0: you for coming. It was fun. I hope everything yeah. went well. <laughs> I think. <laughs> thank you for listening to Le Cato Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begna. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks, to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit AOCINC.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup.
1: The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its Board of Directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at AOCINC.org.